Uh, we'll hear argument now in number 995153, uh, Cornell Johnson versus United States. Uh, Ms. Lalamia, am I pronouncing your name correctly? It's pronounced Lalamia. Lalamia. I stand corrected. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice. Like Scalia, right? Lamia. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue presented in this case is whether reimposition of supervised release under the uh, provisions of subsection H of the supervised release statute violates the ex post facto clause in this case. The ex post facto clause prohibits any law that is applied retrospectively and in application disadvantages an individual by imposing a sentence that is greater or harsher than that which would have applied at the time that the offense was committed. The respondent in this case has effectively conceded that the application of the provisions of subsection H in this case and reimposition of supervised release is retrospective in this case. However, the question remains then whether respondent was disadvantaged by application of those provisions and reimposition of supervised release. What what do you mean or what do you think respondent by the term retrospective? Retrospective means an, an application of a statute that is a, applied after commission of the offense, the initial offense. And in this case, the, the operative uh, date is the date of Mr. Johnson's offense. Uh, his credit card crime was committed in 1993, and that would be the operative date because supervised release is a punishment that springs forth from that offense. From that offense. Yes. Now, yes. the First Circuit, in an opinion by Judge Selya, I believe, uh, thought that the original statute, 3583E, unmodified, permitted the same thing. Isn't that right? That was the First Circuit position. That's correct. That is the first. So if that were the case, it wouldn't matter that 3583H was enacted, I suppose. There wouldn't be a change. That's, that's exactly right. So if Justice we were Department. to adopt the First Circuit view, end of case. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. There would be no need, as you say, mm-hmm. for Congress to have enacted subsection H. Well, except there was a split of authority, and I suppose they wanted to deal with that. That's right. And uh, Because the, we hadn't. I think that there was an invitation for this Court to deal with it because there was a circuit split. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, the majority of the circuits that addressed the issue to which you're referring have determined that Subsection E3, the earlier version, that was in effect at the time of Mr. Johnson. We don't weigh the number. We weigh the persuasiveness. I'm I'm sorry. We weigh the persuasiveness of the Court's reason, not how many were on one side versus the other. And O'Neill, as you conceded, if O'Neill was correct, that is the end of this case. So please focus on why O'Neill was Incorrect, because at least I found it a fairly persuasive analysis. The decision in O'Neill is incorrect, and the rationale of several courts who have addressed this issue is more persuasive. Uh, the, the initial approach in uh, determining whether subsection E3 offered the authority 
for imposition or reimposition of supervised release begins with the statute itself. If one looks at the text of subsection E3, uh, it's very, very clear on its face. It permits a court, upon the correct findings, in other words, a violation of supervised release, to revoke an individual's supervised release and to, re, uh, to require that the person serve in prison all or part of the term of supervised release. They use the, the, the term revoke in three but terminate in one. Uh, uh, and it, it, it seems to me your position would be stronger if they'd use the word terminate in three as well. Uh, I believe that there's a difference that could be drawn from, from the use of terminate in subsection E1 as opposed to revoke in as used in subsection E3. If you'll note, subsection E1 contemplates a termination of supervised release under very favorable conditions. In other words, it's much like an honorable discharge. A person is terminated, a person's uh, term of supervised release is terminated if after a period of one year the court determines that the conduct of the person released and the interest of justice warrant a termination of supervised release. Terminate has some sort of benevolent uh, connotation in revoke, does it? Well, in this situation, it it does. The, under subsection 1, the terminate does indeed refer to a favorable resolution of the supervised release term. However, under subsection E3, where, the, where Congress has used the word revoke, it demonstrates an unfavorable conclusion of the term of supervised release. And this is important to note because, uh, you know, it's, subsection E3 refers to revocation upon a violation of the person's conditions of supervised release. Well, it's more words, than just unfavorable, isn't it? I thought the strongest point for your case is that uh, 3 goes on to say that the term, that the time he's already served in supervised release will not count towards his future prison time. And in order to prevent it from not counting towards it, the whole thing has to be revoked. It isn't just terminated. It's revoked as though, as though it never occurred, and, and, uh, and the full amount of that supervised release time will now be served in prison. That's exactly right, Justice So, I mean, that Scalia. explains using revoked instead of terminated, I suppose. That's exactly right. And if where, where does it say that you can't — I'm sorry, what language maybe. is it? I've got a little bit lost. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Which is the language that says, I thought that if you serve — suppose I impose a term of five years for a serious felony of supervised release. Yes. Two years passes, and the guy violates 14 conditions. I thought that under Celia's reading of this, which I think makes sense to me, and the others don't, I'll put on, to put to say where I am at the moment, uh, what you do is you say, five years was supervised release. You violated what you were doing. Therefore, you're back to square one. I'll take that five years, and I can divide it, three years jail, two years supervised release. That's why they use the term part. And moreover, it makes sense. Why would you normally want to have a person adjust to the community, but the person who's really worse because he's violated his supervised release, you'd say, you're not going to have any adjustment period. Why wouldn't they want to leave that up to the judge? Divide it. Well, and in fact, Congress has made that authority available by enactment of subsection H. I know that, but I mean, why wouldn't they have wanted it as a, frankly, I always thought they did from day one. 
since there is no other reading that makes any sense. Now, that, that's that, — I'm putting that pretty strongly, but I want to I get your answer. And I didn't think it said that you can't — if he's — if it's five years that you sentenced him to supervised release, and he violated it after four years, I thought that I might be wrong. You're back at square one. You can send him to prison for the whole five years. You can send him to prison for three years, whatever. Is that — am I wrong about that? That's correct. I'm That's right. That's correct. That is a correct reading of subsection E3 mm-hmm. uh, or subsection okay. A. All right. So then why isn't Celia's — we're back there. Why, why isn't Celia's uh, thing the common-sense reading of it, and why isn't the common-sense reading of it at least permitted by the language? The starting point would be uh, a look at the word revoke. And revoke, under the plain dictionary definition, means to cancel or annul. But uh, how can you was, maintain that when H — which does take the position, you would say, prospectively only. That section also uses the term revoked and then spells out that you revoke it, you go back to square one, and you can um, make the division, but not quite as you conceded before, because E3 says even if the term of re- re- that's revoked is three years of supervised relief, you can put him back in prison only for two years for this category of offense. Isn't that so? Yes, for this so. category of offense, that's correct. There is a limit. So you would so the extra year that's been revoked under your reading doesn't get made up. It just drops out. Under our reading of subsection E3 that was in effect at the time of Mr. Johnson's offense, there, the authority that's provided by subsection E3 is strictly for revocation. However, in subsection H, which you referred to, Justice Ginsburg, there is authority given for reimposition of supervised release. Yes, but well, the I word revoked, you can't put much weight on it when it's retained in the section that does say, Judge, here's the three years. You can divide it, not more than two in prison, but then you have another year left over. You can put him on supervised release using the word revoked. So I don't see how you can... You can say the rever- word revoke means one thing in H and something different in E3. In, in subsection H, where Congress has specifically authorized the courts to reimpose supervised release, uh, they have given that authority upon consideration of the split in authority that's uh, come out of split in the circuit's decision. Well, that's, that's what it, 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 it's, it seems to me that you are better off with H. Uh, because you can say uh, three has this very strict reading and we still have room for eight. But under your uh, uh, insistence, I think proper insistence, that we look at the statute as of the time when the offense was committed, H wasn't there. That's correct. So I think we have to uh, — I I suppose we have to look at the statute as if H were not there, other than that Congress gives a reading which we may give some — some weight to, uh, because it seems to in, in, in interpret the statute in particular way. I don't, I don't think H helps you much. I agree. I agree. I think that subsection E3, which is the operative statute in this case, because Mr. Johnson's offense was committed prior to enactment of subsection H. So although you'd like to use H, I'm not, I'm not sure that you can. I, I should have said, I think it does help you, but I'm not so sure that you can use it. I agree with you. And under subsection E3, where uh, Congress has provided the authority to revoke a term of supervised release, if one looks at a, a common plain dictionary definition of the word revoked, it clearly contemplates uh, a rescission, an end, 
a conclusion, that type of thing, a termination of a probation or, or in this case, a supervised release order because of a rule violation. Ms. Lalami, is, is, is Judge Selya's position and the government's position here that the only supervised release that can be imposed after the revocation is whatever had not yet been served? I mean, let's assume he had been given five years of supervised release. He, he violates the terms after two years. And is, is it, uh, is it uh, Celia's position and the government's position that the court can impose an additional five years of supervised release afterwards or only three years? I believe it's the government's p- position that they may impose five years of supervised release. The full release. five years. So really what you need to get to Celia's very intelligent position, as Judge Breyer sees it, makes more sense. It probably does. But to get there, what you need is some authorization to impose a term of supervised release at this stage. And the only, the only authorization for imposing supervised release is 3583A. which says the court, in imposing a sentence to a term of imprisonment for a felony or misdemeanor, may include as part of the sentence. At the original sentencing, you have authority to impose five years. I don't know where you get the authority to impose five years under E3. Maybe maybe you have authority to use the leftover leftover three years, but where do you get authority to impose the, the new five? Are you, you're not the one who should answer that question, but the government well, will answer it. Sure. I mean, isn't the answer E2? E2. Under, under subsection E2. E2 talks about extending the term which has already been revoked. If less than the maximum was, was imposed. No, no. E2 can extend. See, E2 allows you to extend a term of supervised release if less if less than the maximum was authorized. Was previously imposed. I'm assuming he imposed five years. And the guy, which is all it no, was no, authorized. He, what he does is, first he extends it. All right. Well, sh- counsel doesn't understand the question. In, no, no. In, this, in this particular case, the extent of the supervised release order at initial sentencing for Mr. Johnson was three years. The judge could and did impose a three-year sentence of supervised release at initial mm-hmm. sentencing. Was that the maximum he could have imposed? Yes. Okay. Yes, he did, and he imposed the maximum. Upon revocation, however, the, the statute is clear. It allowed the district court to revoke a term of supervised release and require the defendant to serve all or part of the term in prison with the limitation that only two years may be imposed for re-imprisonment. In other words, Congress capped the period of time for a court to impose a sentence of imprisonment as a punishment for that person's willful violation of its conditions of supervised release. Yeah, so what happened here on uh, the additional order by the court? Did they stay within the original five-year term? No, in this case, this, uh, the court, in, well, th- there, is, there, was no adi- there was no initial five-year term that was available for supervised release. No, but there was, it was a five an year. overall five-year. Yes, at initial sentencing, the court could have imposed five years of imprisonment and could have imposed three years of supervised release to follow. And in the first instance, at initial sentencing, the court did impose 25 months based on guidelines factors that were appropriate in Mr. Johnson's case. In other words, the court. Okay, and on revocation, what happened? I mean, what limitation? 
was upon, imposed after the revocation of the supervised release? Upon revocation, the limit under subsection E3 is a maximum period of re-imprisonment of two years. And that's what was given? No, not in this case. The Court ordered 18 months of re-imprisonment and thereafter imposed a sentence of supervised release that it's our position that no supervised release of any length of time I know that's your position. What was imposed? One year. One year. And that placed the maximum period of restraint on liberty following Mr. Johnson's revocation at two and a half years under subsection E3, the maximum period of restraint in the form of imprisonment would have been two years. But the total but the total supervised release was still under three years? In this particular case How much supervised release had he served before he violated it and it was and it was uh, revoked? Roughly seven months. Okay, so it was roughly seven months at the time that he committed a new crime. And so it was all within the statutory maximum? All within maximum. the statutory maximum for supervised release at the original sentencing. No, at, actually, let's see, at, at original sentencing, the maximum was three years. Upon and he, he was released on supervised release. He served approximately seven months. Right, and now has another, another how many? He had another year of supervised release. However, that coupled with the two years, excuse me, the 18 months of imprisonment that the judge ordered upon revocation put him over the two years. Counsel, would no, you please clarify one thing which I think there's been some confusion about? As I understand your position, you are not contesting that if this judge said, if this judge said, I'm not going to put you back in prison, but the three years is revoked and it's restarted, that it would have been proper under the statute as it existed before age to say, start over on supervised release, three years of supervised release. I do not understand you to be disputing that. Am I correct? That the period of time had not been reached? That the judge could have said, without regard to how much time he had served, you go back on supervised release for three years. Didn't the statute permit that? I would disagree with that interpretation of subsection E3. What did it permit? It permitted the court, upon revocation, to require the person to serve in prison all or part of the term. Excuse me, to require the person to serve in prison all or part of the term. It required prison time? It it allows the court. If it allowed prison time but didn't require it, wouldn't, wouldn't it allow supervised release to rerun? on the idea that it's revoked and it starts over. I would disagree with, with, with that. I think that the, the notion that created some discretion, that there was some discretion in the district court's order, allowed the court the discretion, the all or part language, to all or part, all or part of the, up to two years, and it allowed the court to impose a one-month prison term if the court deemed that that was appropriate under the circumstances. Your position is all or nothing, imprisonment, freedom, but no supervised release once it's revoked. No supervised release once it's revoked under subsection E3, but it's not so much all or, all or nothing. It's not two years of imprisonment or no imprisonment. It's no, well, it's all or, all or nothing in the years. sense is that it's, it's rather odd to say that the judge uh, can either must either set him free or put him in prison and can't give him uh, the, the, the lesser punishment, but that's, but that's your position. But that's assuming that supervised release is a lesser punishment, and 
And I would not be willing to state that supervised release is a less harsh or a less harsh punishment than imprisonment. But your, as I understand, your position is that what, whatever combination uh, of imprisonment and supervised release, whenever imposed, that the total amounts of those two components, the total lengths of those two components, may not extend beyond the maximum date that though that would have been possible for those two components at the time of sentencing. Is that correct? There's a, a limitation on what can be imposed. There's a, under subsection E3. No, but let me, let, me make it, let me make it simple. If at the time of sentencing, forget this crime, I don't know what it was in this case, if at the time of sentencing uh, the judge had said, I'm going to impose the, the maximum of, of imprisonment and release, and the maximum would have been five years, he could have, you know, given him one year in prison, four years of supervised release, or whatever. But the maximum is five years. Is it your position that at, at any revision he, he may not impose anything that extends beyond that five-year date? Is that your position? That is the position because that's the statutory — that would be the statutory authority provided by Congress. Well, is that it, and then some. You go beyond and, that. But he's wrong on the statute. The statute's five years prison plus three years supervised release was the maximum, wasn't it? That's right. It, and I think — No, no, I'm but I, I, I didn't mean in this case. But I, what, whatever the, the — whatever the total length of imprisonment and supervised release may be in any case, is it your position that at any subsequent recomputation under C, the total of those two components may not extend beyond the date which would have been the maximum date at time of sentence? Is that your position? Under C, I'm not — I'm not is, is your answer to Justice Souter that, in your view, once there's been a revocation, there cannot be the second component at all? It is my position, in our view, under subsection E3, that there cannot be an additional imposition of supervised release oh, of, I re- I re- of any period of time. I realize that. But if you lose on that point, is it then your position, is your fallback position, that whatever the maximum date for the combination of those two components would have been at the time of sentencing is the maximum date for whatever the Court uh, imposes consisting of those two components at the, at the time of resentencing. In, in this particular case, the resentencing I believe that you're referring to is upon revocation. Yeah. His initial sentencing, uh, at his initial sentencing, the Court had a certain term of imprisonment available subject to the sentencing guidelines factors, and a certain period of supervised release available. Upon revocation, and within the, the supervised release statute, upon revocation, the Court did not have the same period of imprisonment available. It had a limit on the period of imprisonment. Okay, so let's assume that there could only have been two years imprisonment, and whatever else there was could have been supervised release. You don't concede that, but let's assume it for the sake of argument. Is the date beyond which that combination cannot extend the same date beyond which such a combination could not have extended at the time of original sentencing? Yes. Okay. Oh, I well, but it won't help you in this case. I'm sorry, I didn't I, It won't help you in this case. Right. I mean, you that, That's right. Because it, 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 it didn't go beyond that. There was, what was it, two years, five months left? In this particular case, upon revocation, even if we assume that subsection E3 permitted a reimposition of supervised release, the period of supervised release that would have been allowed was three years. And in this case, if 
if we take the entire time that Mr. Johnson has been under restraint, it would be the seven months that he was on restraint for prior to his revocation. Well, excuse me. The statute says without credit or time previously served on post-supervision release. That's correct. Those words say you can go back, you give him no credit for time previously served on post-release supervision. You give him no credit for that, you can reimpose that whole period. That's correct. But you said no when I asked you that question before. I'm sorry. I asked you if you, the judge is reading E3, and he said, ah, this tells me he gets no credit for time previously served on post-release supervision, so we go back and I'm going to give him the whole three-year supervised release over again, no jail, no prison. Is that, was that lawful under E3? No, that's not. It, the period of time is a law, maybe a lawful sentence because it has not exceeded the three-year limitation. However, the nature of the sentence, we would still argue, is it? Right. Look, wait. You, your answer to Justice Souter couldn't be what you said, I don't think, if I understand. I don't think so. Imagine it's a Class A felony, not D. That's right. And suppose the statutory maximum is five years prison, five years supervised release. He serves five years prison. The sentencing date was 1990, July 1. It's now July 1, 1995. He's finished. He then goes on supervised release. Four years and 360 days later, he violates all the terms. So it is now the year 1999. The judge is perfectly free to give him five years of prison, even on your theory. And therefore, you could extend the term into 2004, even on your theory. But you're not denying that. You're denying that the judge, instead of giving him the four years prison, could give him four years of supervised release. That's, that's correct. Am I not However, right? That's correct. However, the, there are certain limitations in the statute. Yeah, there are limitations. If it's a Class D felony, you can't put him in for more than two years, and yours happens to be a Class D felony. Class D. And they didn't put him in for more than two years. So the whole thing comes down to the meaning of the word revoke. That's right. And your view is revoke means terminate and finish. And their view means revoke means call back, but you can still do it. That's, right. that's it in a nutshell. All right. And, and why isn't H instructive, at least to that extent, that Congress again used the word revoke? So we can assume that it, when it used the word revoke, it meant call back. It meant it in H, and it meant it in E3. The difference is that in, in H, Congress gave a specific authority for reimposition. Anything called back... In order but it's to not inconsistent with interpreting the rever- word revoke to mean call back, because that's clearly what it means in H. However, in order to undo something, one has to uh, undertake an additional act. And in this case, Congress did not uh, provide the authority for undertaking an additional act to undo the, the revocation in this, in this situation. And under subsection H, it did. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time, if I may. Very well, Ms. Lalamia. Uh, Mr. Wolfson. Mr. Wolfson, may I make a suggestion before you start? I think perhaps your opponent didn't have a full time to develop her argument. Supposing the argument were phrased this way, that prison time and supervised release are different animals, and that you cannot grant supervised release unless there's specific statutory authority for it, and there is no such authority in E3. What's your response to that argument? Uh, I think that um, 
It is — I don't think that you have to have specific authority. To, it does, the statute does not have to say, and the district court may, in addition, impose a term — But you do agree there's no express authority in E3 for granting supervised release after a revocation? Well, it depends on how you read E3. I guess I have to come back to that. Or tell you know, me what, do point. this for me. Right. Tell me right. what the express language in E3 is that authorizes right. supervised right. release. It's to rev- — it, it's to — after — upon revoking a term of supervised release, it is to require him to serve in prison all or part of the term, all or part of the term of supervised release, uh, without credit for the time previously spent on — on post-release supervision. Now, what this — Right, right, but the — right, but — right, but the — Supervised release. The question is, what happens if he serves part of it in term of the term of supervised release in prison? What happens to the rest of the term of supervised release? That is, the term is not the term is not dead; it's still in existence. You're talking about the originally sentenced term, not the authorized term, but the term to which. So, you, you would agree that you can never sentence him to a new term of supervised release, a new three-year term, if that was the original limit. If he's already served a year of it, the most you can do is put him, according to your theory, is put him in jail for a year and then two years of supervised release, which is what would have been left. Uh, Well, you have to bear in mind that he loses credit for time previously spent on the street. So if he — and that's in E3. It's in the — this is on page 3A of our brief. It says — Well, um, he uses right. credit against right. the jail time. No, no, he, no. It doesn't say he no. loses credit against the, against the future. In fact, it's, it says nothing about the future right. supervised release time. No, our, I think our argument does assume that he, that, that he loses credit for the entire period of time spent on supervised release. So both, let's assume Both that, against prison and against a future supervised release sentence. Yes, but the total of prison — no, but the total of yes. prison and supervised release — in, under E3 as it existed before, couldn't exceed the time that he was ordered to serve on supervised release initially. So if he was initially sentenced uh, at his original conviction and sentencing hearing to a three-year period of supervised release, right. then um, he's released from prison and, and goes out and serves his supervised release, and then he violates his supervised release on two years and one half. Okay. That, and, and he's, let's assume that he's revoked immediately, just to simplify. Right. He loses credit for that two years and one half, and the three-year period runs anew. It's exactly as Justice Breyer uh, was saying. You go back essentially to square one. So then the district court says, what will I do with this three-year term of supervised release? That is the term of supervised release. And what E3 allows the district judge to do, the district court to do, is to order him to serve all or part of it in prison, all are part of the term. Where the does it authorize him to spend right. part of it in supervised release? The old right. sentence of supervised release has been revoked. I assume you need some new authority to prescribe a new term of supervised release. Where did you get that from? Uh, Justice Scalia, I, I don't think I agree. In, I, I, there's a subtle difference, but I don't think that I agree that it is really a new term of supervised release. The point is that it is, it is the term of supervised release the, the, that is basically re- called back and set anew. So it, I don't think that it's — I think it's incorrect to look at it as though the district court is required to — to impose a new term of supervised release as the sentence, as the statute was in effect then. What I'd wonder until — actually, this is a point I had not at all focused on, but let's imagine a person who isn't violating anything. That person was sentenced to five years in prison 
followed by one year of supervised release, or two, let's say, two years of supervised release, and he never does anything wrong. Now, I have always thought that under E2, not E3, the prosecutor or someone could come in and say, I'm sorry, I don't think that two years is enough. I would like his term extended to four years, all within the statute. It's an A felony. Right. I would have thought that E2, since it gives the authority of the judge to extend as well as to cut down in the same way, it says that we used to do that with parole. It says that right in the statute. I would have thought that that gave him the authority to extend or cut back or impose new conditions. It's like parole. It's just another word for parole. Now, I thought that that was so, but I'm not positive. Well, I, I'm not sure it's just like parole, but, but is, if, if he was initially — let's suppose it was a Class A felony and, and he could have gotten five years of supervised release, but he initially got only two, mm-hmm. and close to the end of his period on supervised release, uh, the prosecutor or the probation office says, we think that his record uh, warrants a new, an extension of the term. Yes. And, and — but that's not — That's relevant to this case in the following way. It's relevant to this case because a person who was sentenced to less than the maximum but violated his condition could be called in. The judge would then extend the term to the maximum and then, having done that, revoke it and divide it between prison and supervised release. Now, I'm not — I'm I'm putting this to you to get your reaction. I'm not certain that that's the right way to read it. I, I, I think that some courts have said that you could look at it that way. I think it would, but it would depend in some cases on how the math worked, frankly. I mean, in, in this case, he violated, he violated for seven months, seven months in, but I, but of course the judge was proceeding under age. But I think but, Justice Breyer's example right. was no violation. They just changed their mind and want to up the sentence a little bit. Right, but I, but in Justice Breyer's original hypothetical where he said, Extended from two two, term, two years to four years or five years, he's not being sentenced to a new term of supervised release. He's extending a term of supervised release. And my, I think in the same, I think one should look at Justice Scalia's question to me in the same way, which is even when his supervised release is being revoked, and then he's being uh, he's required to spend some time in prison and some new time on supervised release, he's not being sentenced to a new term of supervised release. The term of supervised release is being called back and set as if at the beginning. And that's, I, I mean, th- I think that that's, you know, one can read the, you know, two and three sort of go, uh, proceeding roughly along the same lines. The think, reason you say that right. is that it, I take it that it would make no sense or it wouldn't make much sense to say that uh, upon revocation, the sentence may be to uh, all or even a portion of the original period of supervised release, unless Congress had meant that if the court sentences only to a portion, there would be at least the balance of supervised release to be served as supervised release, because that only that's the only reading that would be consistent with the theory of what supervised release is there for. I think that's basically right. That is, when one does interpret this statute, one has to bear in mind uh, what the policies of supervised release are. And it does raise, I think, as as the First Circuit and the Eighth Circuit and one of the Eleventh Circuit decisions pointed out, why would one want to sort of force a court to choose between uh, sending somebody uh, to prison and uh, and 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 uh, 
following well, that, again, the, the policies the of supervised release. The answer is pretty release. easy to that. Right. If you have a right. tough law and order Congress that says we want people on supervised release to know that if they revoke, if they violate a term of, of their condition, their release can be revoked and they must now do prison time. And that's exactly what the plain language says. Well, it doesn't. It's not and we, don't want, we don't want some bleeding heart judge to, to refuse to give them the full time in prison by giving them some of that time back on release, which they've just violated. We don't well, want that to happen. We're, the only option we're going to give these judges is to send them to, to prison. Well, I'm not, that makes I'm not some sure. sense. You don't have to agree with it, but it makes sense. I'm not sure I agree with that, Justice Scalia. First of all, I think if, if Congress had wanted that approach, one would have expected it to say something like, the district judge must uh, revoke his supervised release. And indeed, one would have expected that it would have put uh, particular times that the defendant had to serve in, in prison. But, uh, but in fact, what it did was it said to the district judge, all or part of it. And, indeed, and, and part of it can be quite uh, can be quite a short amount of time. That is, consider, for example, and we've cited one case like this in our brief, the case of Cooper. Consider, for example, a defendant who looks as though he's basically going on the right road, but he's having some trouble and he commits a, a, a relatively minor but nonetheless still serious violation of supervised release. And the district judge says, I think, I think you need some time back in prison. It's, you know, it's necessary for you to to have a reminder of what prison is like. It's necessary to protect society. Um, you're, you're sort of, you've wandered a little bit off the road. But after that, I don't think that, I'm not going to give up on you completely. And so I'm going to put you back on supervised release again. That, I think, is, that is a very sensible policy. And that is exactly the policy no, that is no lost. There's no doubt about that right. being a very sensible right. policy. The question is whether the right. literal reading of the statute is so nonsensical. Frankly, I think it would be unwise to read it that way. But is it so unwise that we can't believe Congress really intended what it said? I, I'm not going because to. Because the only right. authority, and, and to answer you, they, they could have spelled it out, but they could also say, well, we've given the judges, the judges four options in E1, 2, 3, and 4. And in option 3, he can really throw the book at him, put him in prison up to the time of uh, spent on uh, uh, authorized supervised release. But that's his only option. They, they could have said that, and it would not have been irrational. I don't think, I'm not going to argue that it would be an absurd result, but I do think that it is somewhat, it is a somewhat, it is a somewhat illogical policy to say that Congress wanted to deny the district court the flexibility to say, you should both have some time in prison and some time in supervised release. All he would have had to do was say to serve in prison or on an additional period of supervised release, then all the rest would read the same way. That's what they it could have. It could have said that. That's what it means. I, right. but I, the, I agree it could have said that, but it did say, but I think that did say, it, it, the fact that it did say all or part of the term of supervised release. The length. Right, well, it, what, it, what it points out, though, I think, is that if the district court saw that only a short amount of time in prison was necessary, and it gave that to the discretion of the district court, if only a short amount of time in prison was necessary to sort of get the offender back on the right path, and then after the offender was on the right path, uh, you know, it was time to start the supervised release experiment again, I think that, that, uh, that's what Congress intended for, ha- for district courts to have the flexibility to do. Uh, the, reason, the reason you say it would be illogical to deny that, I take it, is that supervised release is supposed to increase the odds of the prisoner succeeding in working his way back into society without further trouble. And, and it would be illogical to suppose that Congress meant to jettison that policy for somebody in your hypothetical. 
I, I think that's basically yeah. right. And I think that in considering that, it's also useful. Except that the guy had already forfeited his entitlement to that by violating the conditions once. I, well, why is it irrational to say, you know, you, we, we tried to help you out, but, you know, you, you ingrate, you violated the terms of it. We're not going to give you another another round of the same thing, so you can go go off and, and rob another grocery store or, what you know, whatever right. you well, the district court does in some cases I — mean, the district court doesn't have to — doesn't have to give him another chance on supervised release. I mean, the district court can order him to serve all of the time in prison, all of the uh, — the part of the term that remains in prison, and not give him any supervised release. So what, what the statute does is it says to the district court, here's basically a menu that you can choose from, um, uh, you know, balancing the various policies of supervised release and deterring the — deterring the defendant against committing future crimes, protecting the public, but also uh, providing rehabilitation and providing assistance for reintegration into society. Now, here — excuse me. Suppose that uh, if we're speaking metaphysically, uh, I guess metaphysically, the term of supervised release must still exist, for otherwise how could you serve all or part of it? I think that's that's that is what we've argued basically. Well, I think if you're right. speaking non-metaphysically, right. 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 I guess you have to read into those words about supervised release, former term of supervised release. I, but if they're saying former term serve part of it in prison, you could as easily imply and serve the rest of it where you're supposed to spend it on supervised release. Well, in Are we speaking like, metaphysically or non-metaphysically well, or what? The term. I think the word term in this situation is used to mean the, the, the sanction that was imposed upon the offender, that is, the act, his actual term. I think in this respect, it, it is also useful to look at the experience under the predecessor uh, forms of, not, of non-imprisonment monitoring, special parole, parole and probation, in particular special parole, which took a very similar approach. And, and supervised release is a, is a close cousin to special parole. I'm asking that right. because right. I think where she's right, your right. opponent, is that you do have to do a little bit of twisting of this language. So I, so I would guess what is the best non-twisting that you could do and come up with the result that you think, and I agree with you, makes sense. Well, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure I agree. Read literally, right. I'm not I, sure that I agree. It is twisting. I mean, after all, in the O'Neill opinion, the First Circuit said to read the word "term" the other way, you really need to say. But the First Circuit right. called upon a meaning of "revoke" as given by Sheridan, approximately, <laughs> which, which I think is at least an unusual meaning. And other than Sheridan, it might be tough to find examples. Or, or have you found them? I, revoke means, I mean, literally, of course, it means call back, and that's uh, true. That's but we don't seem to use it in that right. way. We seem to use it in the sense of call back and cancel, except for this time revoked and so forth. Well, it is used in that way, actually, in the predecessor provisions. That is, special parole. I mean, it is used. There, it's a very similar approach, and I think that that's probably what Congress looked to when it, when it was thinking about what did the word revoke mean. I mean, in the special parole statute, um, uh, the parole commission had the authority to revoke somebody's uh, special parole, and then sent, and then he had to serve some period of time in prison after that. And then the parole commission said, then you can put him on special parole again. Now there is a there is a conflict as to whether it could impose special parole again. But there's no disagreement among the courts 
that it could impose at least either parole or special parole after having revoked his special parole a first time. And so this is, this is the experience that Congress has looked to. Similarly, under the old probation statute, the statute said that the district court may revoke an offender's probation in order to him to serve any sentence. And it was recognized that the majority of the courts had certainly uh, held that. When, once the district court revoked an offender's probation, it could order him to serve another term of probation. It wasn't required it wasn't limited to the option of sending him back to jail. And um, so this is, the, this is the experience to which Congress was looking when it uh, enacted this statute. And it, I think it would, it, uh, this statute should be interpreted in light of that experience to provide some continuity uh, along those grounds. What do you want us to say about H? The less the better, so far as you're concerned? Uh, I, I, the less the better, I agree. I mean, I think that basically um, the construction of H is not is not directly at issue uh, in this case. And as we have pointed out in our brief, um, the, the real question is, uh, could the district court have done this under E before H was enacted? So I think it's, it's probably best just to look at 3583. Well, the district effect, right? court thought it was relying on H and that it was going to apply it retrospectively. The district court, I agree the district court thought it was relying on H, but I think nobody doubts, nobody disputes that what the district court did was proper under H. The, the question is whether it could have done the same thing under E3 or under E as it existed at the time of the offense, H not being in the picture. And It, it, it does seem to me from one standpoint that uh, if you're uh, — Construction is correct. They would have gone back and, and amended H. Pardon me, and, and simply amend, amended uh, sub three. Well, they could have done that, but I think obviously they were aware of this uh, conflict and perhaps wanted to make it more clear by putting and out they, H. They, they also did, did, and they did change three. They changed three also. I mean, they made another an, uh, 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 several other amendments to three. They changed G. They did and instead it, of they, it being right. the limitation being the period of supervised release originally imposed, it's the statutory maximum that now governs under E3. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. So I, I, I'm not sure I have an answer as to why Congress put it in its own section as opposed to amending H, as opposed to amending E3, excuse me. Mr. Wilson, but, what, about, what about the rule of lenity? Now that, uh, now that uh, whatever 3 originally meant doesn't matter, since we have H, isn't, uh, uh, doesn't the rule of lenity counsel that we interpret 3 uh, uh, the way a petitioner would have it rather than the way you would, because hers will uh, — uh, will come down less hard on uh, — Well, of course, to invoke the rule of lenity, the Court has to conclude that there is a true ambiguity well, in You the don't think there's and, a true ambiguity and, here. And you you bearing, argue that your position is not, is, not, is not only right, but it's not even the resolution of an ambiguity? There, the Court has to arrive at the conclusion that the statute is truly ambiguous after looking to, to all Let's of the assume tools I have available, no trouble including — right. Let's assume I have no trouble with the proposition that it is at least — at least ambiguous, if not contrary. Your to answer, I suppose, Mr. Wolfson, is you look at the rule of lenity before the statute's amended. The question is, which would be the more lenient reading of E3 without H having been subsequently enacted? I think I have to say that. That is, well, that, that is, one has to look at E3 or at E, the statute, at, at the time that petitioner committed his offense. I, uh, obviously, 
if, if the Court concludes that the, that the statute is truly ambiguous and decides to apply the rule of lenity, I thought your answer might have been that it's an odd rule of lenity, lenity that says that all of these prisoners uh, have to serve in prison and can't get and can't get. Right, right. Well, uh, right. I mean, I think that's. I mean, there are there are certainly circumstances in which not having this option available to the district court hurts the prisoner. I mean, that is the district court faced with. Faced with the construction that the petitioner proposes, a district court might very well say, you know, I, I think it's necessary to impose more prison time. Maybe they uh, would in the case of her client. Maybe they would. We don't know. I mean, after all, the district court did impose less time in prison than the amount of time it could have, even under the old statute, which I think actually yes. confirms again that yes. the district court ought to have at its, ought to have at its hand uh, all of these available, uh, all these available tools. That's no doubt true. If you if you apply the rule of lenity uh, as of as of as of the time the statute was enacted, but interpreting the statute currently, there is no doubt which interpretation is more favorable to defendants. Really? Why? Why? Why, why is it not in doubt? I think to any defendant, I, I don't see how any defendant could be disadvantaged by the interpretation that petitioner uh, asserts today. Any defendant today can be. Well, today, uh, well, today, of course, H does confirm that the district court has, uh, has that option, but, uh, but I, I think that's, I think that's. Is that right? No, I mean, right. this is the part that's, imagine right. the class of people who were sentenced under this prior to the ones the ex post facto clause. Now, if you sent those back for resentencing right, right. and you cut away the option of putting them for seven months on supervised release, the judge might say, well, I can't give them the supervised release. I'm going to throw them into prison for the seven months. Well, that might happen. In the, so how do we know which might, way it will cut? But I was, assuming that, I was assuming that the question meant suppose somebody committed their offense today with eight. The offense today is no problem because eight, you get right. — but we're only talking about the class of people who committed their offense — prior to H. And as regards that class, I honestly don't know, which is why I'm mentioning it, because you may know, I don't know what will happen to that class of people under an interpretation that says the judge can't give them any supervised release, but has to either give them imprisonment or nothing. You you would apply H to those people, even if the offense was committed before H was adopted. H, there's no problem in applying H to those people today if it it provides more liberal treatment for them. Don't don't you think that even for offenses committed before H was enacted, H can be applied nowadays? Uh, Is is that the government's position, that H only applies to prisoners — no, I mean our position Who is committed that committed their it, offenses after H was enacted. Well, no, our position in this case is that it was a, it was acceptable to apply H because it was it was even with H, it's not more onerous than than it was than no, the but previous H law was. Part of a right. statutory amendment right. that made E E three more severe because E three under the new amendment imposes authorizes a longer period of imprisonment than E three under the old statute. Right. Well, it depends. So that statute right. as a whole could, right. in some cases, be more right. severe. It depends on how one looks at the amendment that was made to E3, because, after all, what is true is that even before E3 was amended, 
under the old under the old E3, of course, the, the limit there was a limit to the term that was actually imposed. But it is one has to remember it is also true that under E2, the judge could have extended the term to the statutory maximum, and then it could and then it could have been revoked, and the entire term. Uh, uh, entire term. Well, that so, depends on how one reads right, E2, because right, E2 right. doesn't speak in terms of pro, uh, right. su- uh, violations of supervised release. Right. And if it did, then you'd have to have a Morrissey against Brewer hearing and all the rest of it. Well, or either that or it might the, be double jeopardy to be adding, 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 imposing a higher sentence later on. Well, I, I don't know that a lot double of jeopardy is, is, is in the picture, but um, the point is that I think that the court should construe E, should construe with respect to E, that's the question before the court, in deciding, in deciding whether that, whether H is more onerous. And when the court looks to what the prior law was, uh, we've relied basically on E as it was uh, at the time. Mr. Wilson, um, as I read your brief, you were relying specifically on E3 and the reading of that, as Judge Selya did, and you were not infusing this uh, se- section E2 that was first introduced into this colloquy by Justice Breyer. Your brief seems to concentrate on E3 and the meaning of that. That's right. The only, the only point that we've, I mean, except insofar as the statute needs to be construed, uh, you know, as a whole, and one has to look at sort of the, the menu of options that the district court has in considering the policy of the statute, but we do believe that the, the authority for the district court to do what it could have done under prior law is found in E3. And, but, uh, and I think you would have to concede, um, would you not, that there is some ambiguity. Otherwise, how could you account for this circuit split that is lopsided the other way? Well, certainly courts have looked at this different ways, but the court, this court has said many times that the mere fact that Several lower courts have disagreed about the meaning of a criminal statute doesn't necessarily bring to bear uh, the rule of lenity. And I uh, think that the First Circuit's opinion in the O'Neill case it presents a rather persuasive uh, explanation of it. I think the problem with — one of the problems with the uh, other courts is that they — the other courts' constructions of E is that they didn't sort of — they didn't consider what were the policy objectives uh, behind supervised release, and they also didn't place it in the context of special parole and parole and probation, as the First Circuit did very persuasively. And all, all of those are legitimate tools of statutory construction that the Court uh, should consider before arriving at any conclusion that the statute is ambiguous. Um, if there are no further questions, uh, we would request that the judgment be affirmed. Thank you, Mr. Wolfson. Uh, Ms. Lalamia, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you. I want to address a couple points. The first one is the point of policy uh, that the government makes. One must keep in mind that the policy of, of the in, imposition of supervised release at initial sentencing may differ from reimposition of supervised release upon revocation. And given that it's more of a punishment for a person's willful failure to abide by the court's uh, imposed conditions, the Petitioner's reading of subsection E3 would make more sense to allow the court to impose re-imprisonment upon revocation. And, in fact, re-imprisonment is what triggers a re-imposition of supervised release under subsection H. But under E3, it's clear the court could, if it wanted to, uh, impose additional imprisonment, isn't it? I mean, that isn't what the ambiguity is about. Under subsection E3, the court could indeed impose re-imprisonment. And there, 
the, the question is whether it can impose an, another term of supervised release or more supervised release. That's correct. That's correct. Which, uh, and that that is our the petitioner's position in this case that the, there is no authority to reimpose any term of supervised release. So or, a judge is faced with the alternative: either you send the guy to prison or he goes free. You send him to prison for up to two years, the statutory limitation under the supervised release statute, any period in between. And the court can consider factors that would be, that would make a longer or shorter term of imprisonment. How about the benefit of super, supervised release in enabling someone to reintegrate into society? Well, if one considers the benefits weighed against the disadvantages, I think that supervised release is clearly more disadvantageous because it it imposes a restraint on liberty. The proper comparison... Well, but surely prison is a restraint on liberty, too. But the proper comparison in this case is not between an imposition of a prison sentence and an imp- and imposition of supervised release. It's between imposition of supervised release and freedom. And imposition of supervised release, no matter what the policy goals, are, is much more disadvantageous. I don't know why that's the proper comparison, because you're denying the district judge under the old law the ability to say, I won't send him to prison at all, but I'm going to reimpose supervised release. Well, that's correct. And, and even under subsection H, if a district, George wa- district judge wants to reimpose supervised release, it's only upon imposition of a sentence of imprisonment. That's the way the statute reads. It's only if a judge considers revocation appropriate. Yeah, but ev- even if I agree with you about that, you are saying it's got to be the maximum prison the judge can't divide it up between the two. It's got to be the two years in prison, not one year in prison, one year supervised release. Under subsection E3, that's correct. Thank you, Ms. Lalamia. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.